follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash CFRC. You're listening to Season 4, Episode 2 of Write a Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM, an entirely student-run initiative by the Queen's International Affairs Association. In this week's episode, we look at the upcoming Canadian federal election. First, we speak with Deborah Coyne, former Liberal leadership candidate and current Green Party policy advisor. Next, we speak to Professor Goodyear Grant, who provides a scholarly perspective. And finally, we host a debate between Queen's University's Liberal, Conservative, and New Democratic Associations. On today's episode of Right of Reply, we have Queen's graduate Deborah Coyne, who has a long history of being involved in Canadian political affairs. As a constitutional lawyer, Deborah became a leading figure in the debates concerning the Meech Lake Accord and the referendum on the Charlottetown Accord. Deborah mobilized the engagement of individual Canadians and was co-founder of the Canada for All Canadians Committee. Deborah Coyne was a federal liberal candidate in the riding of Toronto Danforth in 2006 and a candidate for the Liberal Leadership Party of Canada in 2012. She is now a senior policy advisor to the leader of the Green Party of Canada and the Green Party candidate in the federal riding of Carleton. So I think to begin, we'd just like to know about your experience running the Liberal leadership in 2013. What motivated you to run and sort of what was the dynamic of the Liberal Party at the time? Okay, uh, just to answer that, I have to go back a little bit uh, to to why I was even with the Liberal Party. And and um, it goes right back to about when the stage you guys are at. I've never been particularly partisan, and I just almost accidentally walked into a, a Liberal uh, convention in 1984 when there was a lot of angst about the party and the uh, how it was operating, how distant it was from grassroots and all of that. <laughs> it sounds very similar to what you hear constantly uh, in the years since. And, and literally accidentally got elected to a reform committee to reform the party. So that was how I got in. And it was, uh, from my perspective, as not a particularly partisan person, it was very interesting. And it gave me an eye-opening into party structures and how you're, how you're linked to the grassroots and so forth. I then left the party entirely to be nonpartisan during the Meech Lake and Charlottetown Accords that you mentioned. And I, I got back into the party and decided it was time to see whether being partisan again would help. In, the, in 2006, I ran against, uh, as a, a sort of sacrificial lamb, against uh, Jack Layton in Toronto. That was because I'd seen a whole number of years of uh, majority or, or um, of liberal governments where all of a sudden by... I think it was 2003 or so, Jean Charest and the premiers were up in arms creating something called the Council of the Federation, which was just the premiers, and they were saying, we're not being heard, uh, we need more influence over the federal government. And it was once again turning the, the, the entire political debate into a federal-provincial lens, it through, it, seeing everything through a federal-provincial lens, and forgetting the needs of the people, forgetting that Ottawa was in fact uh, 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 the only government elected by all Canadians and one that uh, needs to uh, pursue national interests and, and of course collaboration with the province is important but it doesn't define uh, uh, all national activity. So I got in to make the case which ultimately became my theme during the leadership of One Canada for All Canadians, that we had to get back to seeing what was the purpose of the national government, how can we put in place national standards in healthcare, environment, uh, all these things that we need to have to hold us together as a nation, as, as Canadians, but uh, don't have to be uh, antithetical to the provinces. It's working with the provinces, uh, but it, it's not the dominant uh, lens through which you interpret everything. I, 
by the time uh, the, we'd gone through another series of leaders, and I found the, the, the Liberal Party sort of losing, losing sort of its sense, its raison d'etre, in 2000, and uh, after the 2011 election, I thought, I might as well just run for the leadership, which, because the leadership is the moment in a party where you can examine, you know, the intellectual basis for the party, how you're connecting to people and grassroots and so forth. So I ran a very, very um, frugal campaign, I should say. I made the case uh, con constantly for one Canada for all Canadians. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but of course uh, I, I didn't win. But the point was to get in and make those arguments. Now, uh, I know you, perhaps your next question is why am I no longer uh, with the, with the uh, Liberal Party, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. So absolutely. We're going to ask, you know, what your decision, your, what motivated your choice to serve as a Green Party advisor and now as a potential MP for the party, and if there was a specific policy or issue that caused you to leave the Liberal Party. Okay, so there was a, a couple more steps. I did uh, run for a nomination for the Liberals, um, which I did not win, and um, I have to hasten to say that <laughs> my, my subsequent steps have nothing to do with sour grapes. I can tell you that Certainly, nomination processes, and and this goes for for all the for really all the parties, with the exception of the Greens because they're so they're young and small right now, uh, are really the most anti-democratic uh, step in the whole political process, and people tend to forget that. And I guess I went through that and saw uh, that the Liberal Party more and more was simply a, a you know a population of elites. So I guess the the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, in a sense, would be Bill C fifty one, and that was. The support, the liberal support for that uh, terrible piece of legislation, uh, was really um, uh, unprincipled politics at its worst. And not only did former chief justices, almost every academic and Canadians, um, uh, get up in arms over every aspect of it, whether it's the privacy invasions and the the overreach, the lack of oversight, um, but. Not only that, the, the government still, this government, the Harper government, in typical fashion, just forced it through. And the liberals made a, a, a calculated uh, guess that, well, th they didn't really like it, but they better support it because they don't want Harper being able to say that they're uh, anti-security uh, or something like that. So that was just a complete abdication of principle and principled leadership on the part of the liberals. So I guess that would be uh, the, the, uh, the major thing. But I was really tired of the party machine and uh, people feeling that they were having to serve an elite or uh, in order to get ahead. Uh, and so when I, I, I talked to Elizabeth, who I've known for a number of years, the Green Party is just plain refreshing. It is a party of people, not elites. It has a good leader who listens and uh, can think long term. Uh, there were as many reasons why I joined the Green Party as there are for why I left the Liberal Party. As we've transitioned into discussing the Green Party, Elizabeth May has discussed the role of the Green Party as a sort of a potential mediator between the NDP and the Liberals if a coalition government were to happen. Do you see this as sort of a viable path for the Greens to pursue? Well, I think we have to wait and see, of course, what's going to be the lay of the land on October 20th. For the Greens, as what's important is as much the number of MPs as the, the level of the vote because one of the key things to do in this next parliament is to get electoral reform in. Proportional representation is uh, the norm in so many democracies now, and we simply have to get it in, because you'll have a chance of making your vote count. And it's getting a parliament that, from now on, will be more collaborative by definition, probably more coalitions, more whatever, but it will be, uh, it will be more civil, collaborative, and constructive. 
So um, going back to, to uh, what the role of the Green Party uh, will be and, and the leader, um, I, I don't think you would call it a formal mediator. I think the, in, the, in, 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 a, in one sense it's, um, it's going to be with the support of the people of Canada, and it's clear during the election it's there. It's a party that isn't particularly partisan, that has a long-term vision, and is willing to reasonably compromise. Uh, so uh, what I see in even the debates at my level, I see lots of things in common with the NDP and the Liberals. And, and but what happens is the NDP and Liberals are always one-upmanship, doing one-upmanship one in these debates, and it's very counterproductive. Uh, what, the, what the Greens can do uh, is come to the table and say, okay, you have, there are similar elements here, and we have to figure out a compromise to get forward. As a student, a lot of us are voting in our very first federal election um, this fall and are looking for a party to support and trying to decide how to place that vote. So you've constructed a really helpful list of 25 reasons for people under 25 to vote for Green. The third on that list, as I'm sure you know, is a promise to legalize and regulate marijuana and amend sentencing laws related to its sale. So can you explain how the legalization of marijuana will benefit the average Canadian, not just perhaps the average student? Well, I mean, for the average Canadian, it's like a few other things. It's an idea that whose time has finally come. Um, it's what the police uh, want. It's to ensure that we're getting the diverting the the law enforcement uh, resources into uh, controlling gangs and other more serious crimes, and and away from something that is uh, that is primarily recreational use. And um, uh, uh, so that's 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 the point. We're trying to uh, update our criminal laws and make sure that it is regulated. It is not something that's just going to be uh, <laughs> remove the, remove the um, interdiction and then have nothing. So it will be regulated, but it is clearly something that uh, law enforcement and, and uh, you know, the vast majority of Canadians support now. So that's, that's where it makes sense. It's time to update the, uh, um, the criminal justice uh, side of things and, um, and get on with the much more serious issues that have to be addressed. Yeah, so on to those serious issues, there's sort of two other aspects of the Green Party's policy that was pr of particular interest to us. There's the promise to fund two years of training or further education following high school, as well as the promise to substantially expand nonprofit childcare. Uh, mm -hmm. From my perspective as a student, that's something that's incredibly important to me, uh, but there have been concerns raised by other parties regarding Canada's capacity to afford all of these programs. So can you talk a little bit about how the Green Party would pay for these promises? Yeah, and I and I should update it. When I did my 25 reasons to vote uh, green, uh, that was before our platform was released. And the platform now calls for eliminating uh, or funding all uh, tuition by 2020. Now, how do you fund it? it? We have to start being innovative. We have to get back to, for example, what I call root and branch tax reform. The government, especially under Mr. Harper, has turned the income tax system into this Swiss cheese operation with new tax credits for firefighters or for guide dogs or this, you know, uh, tools for people um, who, who need them in their profession, things that are not, that simply undermine the equity and the efficiency of the tax system and diminish uh, the, the, the revenues that we should have for the collective uh, goals that we must um, pursue as a, as a national government. So we need to clean that out. Um, you also have to look at subsidies, not just to fossil fuels, and there are uh, industries which need to be uh, trended out, down, as we know, um, and the Green Party obviously supports that, 
but all subsidies and, and ways that we mess up the tax system and, and divert economic activity into, into areas that are just there because of a tax break. Uh, there are much better ways to encourage the kind of economic activity we need through direct grants, and that is what uh, Germany and, and the U.S. do in the areas of clean energy and so forth. Um, the other way is to find uh, is to not is to make sure we have a good economy that is generating the revenues that we need for this, and that uh, that requires investments, infrastructure, and uh, taking down the barriers to trade across the across the country, the ability to get a credential for some trade or whatever, and be able to take it across the country. And that doesn't happen right now. There is not enough collaboration. So um, I just think we are lacking innovation, and I think the Green Party is the agent of that change right now. Pivoting a little bit to more general political questions, you spoke earlier about not being particularly partisan, which I find very interesting because a lot of young people in Hillary and I's classes have a very you know, ardent attachment to a political party at such a young age, which I found, find really interesting how they've kind of developed this attachment so early on. So do you think that partisanship has helped or hurt Canadian democracy? Well, partisanship is, is part of democracy. There always has to be a degree of partisanship. Um, it's how you, you manage it. And, and how you, you recognize that it is only part. When you're a, a party member or whatever, your goal is not to be part of a club and part of just getting into power. And I, I mean, your, your initial, your, your preamble to your question talked about um, uh, young people being so, so uh, you know, vociferously attached to a political party at a young age. I, I have to say that that is, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that is such a good thing. Um, now I can always say it's, it didn't it didn't really exist in in my day at all. I, I don't believe uh, certainly at Queens there was a young liberal young conservative, and to be honest, uh, I'll, 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 my first vote because I started out in the at Queens in the 70s was for Flora McDonald. She was a <laughs> she was the progressive conservative. Uh, I looked at all my options, and uh, uh, she was by far by uh, you know by any standard the best candidate. Um, and I, I worry about it. I see far too much partisanship and, and narrow thinking developing among young people um, and so much uh, sort of contrived debate and nobody thinking um, innovatively. Um, and I'm, I, I don't want to be too harsh because there's always exceptions. Um, but uh, I, I have to say that I know far more young people who are turned off by that and who are not part of any political party. So um, I would caution you. I, I find it uh, contrived. I find it's it's, uh, it, it narrows down perspectives, um, and it's not helpful in the long run to figuring out what are the best policies uh, uh, for, the, for the country. So I'm curious, like, I, I completely agree. I think it's dangerous to be too attached to a party so young and kind of leads you to selective bias and ignoring the positives of other parties. But is there a stigma around switching parties in um, Ottawa? Did you find negative feedback after your choice of running for Liberal leadership and then now working for the Green Party? No, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I didn't, and, and I think the only, you know, little things like trolls on, on, uh, on, on Twitter that might have made such a comment are precisely the people we've just talked about that are far too coned in on their own little world and see politics simply as a, a power play and, and, a, and an ego trip. So finally, as October 19th quickly approaches, we'd love if you could give our listeners just one reason why they should vote green on the 19th, particularly given the fact that you are unlikely to hold government. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the one reason is vote for principle and vote for long-term thinking and vote for a refreshing vision of the country. Um, it, and it doesn't matter who's going to form government next time. It's going to be the point of electing uh, your MP is to get a good person in there that is going to collaborate with uh, whoever gets elected in parliament. And we will 
be far better off with having more constructive, collaborative discussion in, in, um, uh, across parties. And that's why a vote for the Green Party is most certainly not a wasted vote. And as far as I'm concerned, it is really the only vote for a party of the people, not elites, and it's an only vote for really bold national leadership. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Deborah. We really appreciate your insight. And I think as well, I really appreciate speaking to someone who just committed to Canadian democracy in general and not just sort of an immutable commitment to a political party. And thank you very much for talking to us. Well, thank you. It was great. Next, we hear from political studies professor Elizabeth Goodyear Grant with a scholarly perspective on the social factors at play in this year's Canadian general election. What role has gender played in this coming election? Um, for me, I always think of gender, I mean, it can play lots of different roles, but the thing that I sort of focus on is gender can play a role in policy, right? In the policy platforms that the leaders um, put forward or in the larger sort of policy debates that occur in the media or among groups or whatever during the election. And then I, well, in, in no small measure on account of my own research, also focus on the gender of the contestants, right? So looking at the genders of the leaders and the candidates um, on offer um, to ask questions about how representative they are. Um, so in this election, I feel like, I mean, gender has played a role in both. It always does. On the policy side, well, most recently, gender is playing a role in this big NECOB debate that we're having um, that's sort of taken over the discourse over the past week or so, where the parties are really um, taking very careful stances um, to try and appeal to large segments of the electorate. I mean, one of the funny things about this is that, you know, it's been really controversial in the, in the media and stuff, but uh, a vast majority of Canadians are in favor of the NECAB ban during citizenship ceremonies. So the Conservatives are on the side of public opinion, and it's been very difficult for the Liberals and the New Democrats to position themselves um, so that they're not sort of turning off large portions of the electorate. Um, so that's just one example. In terms of policy, too, early on, we saw a couple of key policy uh, planks put forward by several of the parties um, that are intimately related to gender and gender inequality, actually. So, like, for example, the New Democrats' proposal for a $15 a day Quebec-style daycare program. Um, so this has always been a real um, sort of pet um, issue of the feminist movement and, you know, academics who focus on gender and gender inequality. And, and it's considered to be a sort of key component of women's sort of full equality in the workforce and, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, on the candidate side, well, I mean, one of the things that would be sort of most obvious is the major party leaders are all men. We do have Elizabeth May, but I mean, her party, while um, interesting, and of course, the environmental agenda is really important, I mean, her party's not competitive in that nobody would expect it to form a minority or majority government. So she's kind of a minor player in relation to the three major party leaders. And once again, we have an electoral contest in which all the major leaders are men. On the candidate side, we do see uh, 30, about 30% 30 of the candidates are women. That's not really a change from the past few electoral cycles. The parties differ on that. The New Democrats have the most. The Liberals have about 30%. Conservatives, about 20 Don't look for any major gains in the House of Commons uh, after October 19th on women's representation, especially since the NDP seems to have lost its momentum in the polls. Now, the way we represent women in media compared to the male uh, 
contestants, do you think that plays into the issue of not wanting to run? Yes, I do. Uh, so this is something that I'm really interested in and have written a lot about. I actually have a book on this called Gendered News. Um, and one of the, the, I mean, I make lots of arguments in the book and present lots of evidence. Um, but one of the arguments that I make actually is that one of the effects, in addition to several others, of imbalances in news coverage of politicians is that uh, it does turn off young women or other women in the sort of candidate eligibility pool, right? So there are lots of women who are qualified to be leaders. There are lots of women who have long histories in parties and, and who, who could throw their hat in the ring. But one of the, the, the problems is that leaders are such a focal point of our media and they, they, I mean, our media everywhere and our media included, I mean, it's tough party leaders right they're dissected and for women some of the challenges that uh, aren't faced by men are things like you know how do they present their their partner or their family to media how do they shield their their personal lives from coverage because this is often a sort of liability for women politicians whereas for male politicians it's often actually a great asset right so look at coverage of Justin Trudeau where he's very um, adept at presenting himself as a great family man and he has this wonderful beautiful family around him and, and, and media sort of present them as supporting characters that enable him to be a great leader uh, for women politicians the reverse is often the case when they're shown in public with their families or their husbands or partners you know questions are sort of raised maybe not explicitly but implicitly about um, role tension, you know, how is she going to manage her public and her private life? Um, if she has small children, there may be implicit uh, criticism about sort of leaving her children behind and what kind of mother is she? So these are some of the pitfalls that women face in media. And it, I mean, it's not media per se. It's not, media aren't going after women politicians and nobody's doing this maliciously. The problem is the sort of gender role norms and stereotypes that we all hold. These come out through media. Let's uh, switch over to electoral issues. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of our current system? What's good? What's not working? <laughs> this is a like really big topic, isn't right. it? <laughs> <laughs> what's working and what's not working? Um, it's a topic, too, that young people always want to talk yeah. about. Um, and uh, there's a lot of support for electoral reform among younger cohorts of voters. You know, both types of systems actually have flaws, right? right. So majoritarian slash uh, plurality systems, which is what we currently use, and proportional systems, they're actually built on fundamentally different logics about how government should be formed and how government should run. I actually am not, I don't have any major problems with the current system. Um, I think it suits uh, our political institutions. Um, it tends to provide stable one-party majorities and sometimes minorities, which I think we have found is not actually a big problem for Canadian democracy. In a large country where you have single members representing territorially defined districts, I think that actually works for large countries. Um, so there's lots to recommend it, actually. Um, and I mean, I'm kind of agnostic about electoral change, but I'm certainly, I'm, I don't think there are good enough reasons right now, or at least it hasn't been apparent to me to sort of um, propose a, a wide-scale change. On the proportional side, I mean, there are benefits, right? So greater representation of, um, you know, the full range of opinion in the electorate, right? So there's no wasted votes and all this sort of thing. 
Probably one of the greatest benefits potentially, although the research is really really mixed on this, is enhancing a citizen's sense of fairness about the result, right? The result is proportional. And so nobody feels like they wasted their time voting and government reflects, well, actually not government necessarily, but the, the legislature reflects the distribution of opinion in the electorate. One of the issues with this though, and, and you're a political science student, so you know about what happens in PR systems. After the election results come in, a coalition has to be put together in order to govern. So we don't always end up with governments that actually reflect faithfully the distribution of opinion in the electorate. So think of a key example where small or minor parties play the role of kingmaker in coalition governments. So, I mean, we could certainly ask questions about how representative that is, or is that is that actually a faithful reflection of, of the opinion in the electorate and so on. So, it, I mean, I want to stop here because I feel like right. what I'm saying is this is a super complicated issue, mm-hmm. right? I know the parties, a couple of the parties, though, are, are saying, you know, if I'm elected, this is going to happen. Right now it's in their platform. Yeah, I know. So that is a major change. Like, that won't just change how we elect people and uh, to sit in the legislatures and then govern and how governments are formed. It will fundamentally alter our entire system. So Canadians, be careful. <laughs> uh, the one, one of the great, um, and it's clear, the research is clear about this, one of the great advantages of proportional systems is that they do tend to elect greater proportions of women, minorities, and, and other underrepresented groups in society. So that, that it has that going for it. And are there any dangers you see in PR systems? I think there are some. I mean, I don't want to overblow them. But um, so some of the dangers, I mean, it depends how it's designed. I don't think we would ever move to a pure PR system. I think probably what we would get would be a mixed system, so uh, like a mixed member proportional system. Um, But some of the dangers could be things like uh, loosening of ties between the member and the local constituency. So if we start to have these larger constituencies with multi multiple members elected per constituency, there may be um, um, less close relationship and localism or sort of close connections between citizens and their MP is something I think that Canadians value. Um, if we adopt a mixed system, one of the dangers is that we'll have two types of uh, members, right? So some will be elected through single-member plurality rules, and some will be elected through proportional rules off of party lists. The danger there is potentially that, you know, you have sort of two tiers of MPs. One may may be seen as more legitimate than the other, especially if we see more women and minorities elected off the party list instead of in the constituencies, right? So, I mean, as always, when you're playing around with political institutions, especially fundamental ones like electoral rules, there, there could be dangers for sure. I mean, but we would, um, there'd be a transition period and, and it would just become the new normal, right? So New Zealand went from pure single member plurality to a mixed system um, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and, you know, things are fine. Yeah. yeah. So we're in the midst of an election. We're all watching the news. We're hearing what the parties have to say. What's missing? <laughs> so you're just asking small questions today, right? <laughs> yes, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's missing? Actually, I, I mean, I don't know what's missing. Um, I know there are segments of the electorate that do feel as though parties aren't speaking to the issues they care about. Um, I know that's often a complaint of youth. So maybe parties could be talking more about like post-secondary education, 
um, growing instability in the labor market for young people who are trying to you know establish footing in their careers all of this stuff for me though this election more than even recent electoral cycles has actually had a good breadth of um, sort of policy discussion especially uh, for example around the, the the different debate formats we've had so we've had a couple of general debates in English and French and then we've had debates that focus on the economy and then foreign policy. I mean, that's unusual that we have general debates combined with specialized debates on particular subject matter. So for me, that's kind of, um, I mean, that's, that's nice. And it's kind of an indication that we are getting a good breadth of policy discussion in this election. Of course, this election is highly competitive, too, more so than any election I can remember. And um, that's forcing the parties to sort of span the policy spectrum more than they normally would in order to identify and mobilize voters to their, their camp. Now, the point you made about uh, youth and voting, uh, there's a lot of apathy or the numbers are clear that we just don't vote. Um, are parties doing enough to attract your vote? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, so what I would say just first off is... Um, I, I always want to talk about different segments of youth, right? So youth are not universally apathetic or disengaged. There's an important distinction to be made between po like youth who have post-secondary education versus those who don't. Youth, especially who are university educated, are voting in the same numbers, or proportions rather, as they always have. So your, your group, the university enrolled and university educated youth, are very similar to previous generations of youth at the same age. So I would say I'm not, we're not worried about you guys. It's the youth who don't attend post-secondary education, and that's not necessarily the causal factor, but that's at least a correlational factor, who ha whose voting has declined steeply since about the late 80s or early 90s. So are parties doing enough to reach this segment of voters? Um, maybe not, right? They're trying their damnedest, though, to, you know, be super active on social media and, um, you know, like a lot, right? Um, the Liberals and the New Democrats especially have made quite a few, like a lot of efforts to try and attract youth because this would be a sort of natural voting block for them. Um, now, there are conservative youth, of course, but, you know, youth would sort of tend to lean towards the center left compared to older Canadians. But this becomes sort of a vicious cycle, right? So youth abstain from voting in huge proportions, and this gives the party no incentive. The party's no incentive to actually, you know, be in touch with them, or, or there's no electoral payoff, right? Especially during a campaign when your time and money are super limited. You want to mobilize the people or get in touch with the people who are likely to turn out at the polls. So then... If youth don't turn out, parties don't contact them or, or get in touch with them, and then they don't turn out again, and then parties don't care about them, and it just becomes a sort of reinforcing thing. Mm -hmm. So finally, we're uh, watching the debates in Canada, but we're also watching the debates in the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. How do the leadership styles differ? <clears throat> how do the leadership styles? That's a good question, actually. I don't know if I have any pat answers. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Canadian system versus the American system is that they go through this whole process of nomination. Um, I mean, so we have can't leadership nominations, but they don't play out in public over two years. And they aren't general um, elections, meaning you have to be a party member in order to 
to vote in ours. So one of the interesting things about the American system is that before you can be a presidential candidate, you have to go through what amounts to like a two-year process of competing with people in your party, differentiating yourself within a fairly narrow ideological spectrum, attacking your opponents in your party, and then once all that's over and the dust settles, then you go on to the general election, and then you're, you're you know, basically competing with the, the candidate from the other party. That creates funny dynamics, right, where intra-party competition can create divisions and, and um, you know, leader, like candidates can get really aggressive with each other. And then in the general election, they have to become, again, a sort of cohesive unit. And, I mean, it's, it's sort of a weird situation. Leadership styles generally in the U.S. I find are fairly similar. I would say they can be a bit edgier, right? Like the public personas and the sort of attack style politics that exist in the U.S. presidential elections compared to our federal elections. Although we've seen plenty of dirty politics in this election too, right? So it's super competitive in Canada right now in the election. And so the, the party leaders have had a lot of incentives to sort of go after each other. So this campaign we're seeing like, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it American style campaigning, but it's really personalized and often quite negative. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much for being on our show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. Amy's Taxi has been a proud supporter of Queen's University since 1922. When you need a safe, courteous, and comfortable ride, call Amy's Taxi at 613-546-1111. Download Amy's Taxi's new convenient smartphone app, available for Android and iOS devices. And Amy's Taxi is now three taps away. Just click, book, and go. Thank you for continuing to choose Amy's Taxi. Service second to none. 613-546-1111. Welcome back to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9. In this next segment, we are joined by student advocates for the competing federal parties currently in close competition to form the next government. Allow me to introduce for the Conservative Party, Vanessa Walsh, for the Liberal Party, Grant Goldberg, and for the New Democratic Party, Sam Carey. We will be debating and discussing topics involving Canada's foreign relations and answering an assortment of questions pitched to us from students on the Queen's campus. Our format will allow for an opening remark in response to the topic, followed by a moderated rebuttal period from the other parties. And now, without further ado, let's begin. Our first topic this evening is diplomacy and the United Nations a subject that speaks directly to both the political party's ideological foundations and to its strategies for serving Canadian interests on the world stage. We begin with the Conservatives, then the Liberals and NDP for rebuttal. How does your party perceive the role of diplomacy and the United Nations? All right, fantastic. Well, uh, diplomacy, of course, is very important across the world, around the world, and as a major uh, country in not only the G7, but around the world, Canada has a very important role in diplomacy. Um, on the uh, Conservative website, uh, there is uh, one specific movement or initiative that the Conservatives are trying to do, uh, which includes consulate services for countries within the Middle East. So, for example, um, in Ottawa, the, the initiative is to uh, create an Iranian uh, consulate service in Ottawa. Uh, which is great because beforehand the only consulate service for um, Iran was in in uh, Washington, so Iranian citizens 
per new citizens uh, would have to travel all the way down to Washington to um, get any information regarding residencies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's also special interest sections in Turkey and the United Arab Emirates that are going to be talked about um, between diplomats in these countries, and as well as an Omani embassy um, that is going to be created linking um, Oman, the country Oman, and Canada, so that will be in Ottawa. So this uh, relates to diplomacy because Canada is reaching out, the Harper government is reaching out to countries all over the world. Uh, we recently hosted the Prime Minister from India uh, in 2012. Um, Prime Minister Harper and his cabinet ministers visit Israel, Afghanistan, Ukraine, um, all over Europe, having diplomatic relationship relationships with leaders all over the world. And uh, we feel that it's very important, of course, as any government as any government should, to have diplomatic relations between leaders across the world. Thank you. We move now to liberal rebuttal. Um, so thank you, first of all, for having us on the show. I think it's really important for students uh, to learn more about foreign policy and about um, you know, just what's going on in the world, especially for first-time voters that we all are. Um, so in terms of the liberal position on the world stage, um, our position is that we, uh, uh, over the past nine years of uh, the Harper government, uh, our clout has been under threat significantly. Um, our honest broker, broker role has been replaced with more assertive one that has sort of downplayed uh, traditional multilateralism that the Liberal Party has pr prided itself over um, in terms of all the way back to Lester B. Pearson. Um, we lost our seat on the UN Security Council to Portugal because of our, our lack of standing on the international stage. And this, uh, all the way up to this week, um, our uh, uh, an internal memo was released by Foreign Affairs saying that we had just lost uh, that um, our, despite our reputation as an active player on the world stage, the, the memo said, uh, by many measures, our relative influence has declined and or is under threat. Um, so we're looking, the Liberal Party, and what we're going to be doing about this is pushing ourselves to expand, uh, especially into developing nations, um, looking to expand it economically um, with new donor countries that um, things uh, in areas, uh, places like China, through things like the TPP that we strongly support. Um, as well as through traditional things such as peacekeeping, um, where uh, we've been standing on the sideline in the past couple years. Uh, we've been losing our role as a peacekeeper on the global stage. Um, and it's time that Canada takes its place back as a leader of peacekeeping operations abroad, um, more activity in the UN and, and in terms of multilateralism, uh, regaining that Pearsonian notion of multilateralism. That's what the Liberal Party intends to do if we're elected as government. All right, moving to NDP for rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, and again, uh, thank you so much for having me here. It's really quite an honor to be able to participate in this. Uh, the NDP very strongly supports Canada's involvement in more multilateral institutions and more uh, multilateral agreements. Uh, and that that isn't just saying we're going to help out more. This means actually walking the walk. We've taken so many steps back over the last not even just like the last conservative government, but even before that, we started taking steps back. We, first of all, need to start showing up. Canada has been skipping climate uh, climate conferences, other UN sessions that we don't feel are re relevant. This is 21st century. Almost everything is relevant. When you dismiss a problem as too small or not concerning us, those are the problems that become international crises. Canada needs to continue its involvement with, uh, with international organizations, and we need to show people that we are serious about being a part of it. When you go to the UN and you vote for something, 
I know this is hard for us on the other political parties to understand. When you vote for it, it means you're going to do it. We, uh, we voted for things like, oh, yeah, everyone will pay like 0.7% GDP to foreign aid. So when we come up with 0.24, it makes us not a reliable partner. We need to show the world we're ready to play ball, and especially at the UN, because that is where Canada's power shows itself the most. We're not the most relevant militarily. We're not the most relevant economically. We are supposed to be the most relevant at the UN, and we're not anymore because we haven't been playing ball. We move on now to the contentious subject of Canada's involvement in the mission to degrade ISIS. Let's start with the Liberals, followed by an NDP and Conservative rebuttal. How will your party address ISIS if it is given a mandate to form government? Um, and that's a great question. I think it's a super important one um, for many reasons. The Middle East has been always been a, a point of contention globally, and, um, and we're ready to tackle it, maybe in a little bit of a different way than the other parties have. And, but I think we can all agree that there's really no quick fix or easy solutions to this problem. Um, and I think what we need to do is be both a strong coalition partner, so work with our allies there, um, but the Liberal Party doesn't believe that yeah, the fix-all solution is dropping bombs um, in Iraq and Syria. Um, our position is that the best way to stop the Islamic State and the build-up of their forces there is to help uh, with local forces, to give them the ability to fight the war on the ground, um, regain territory, and, um, you know, make sure that they um, have the ability to fight and, uh, uh, and sort of defend their, their own territory themselves. Uh, this is similar to what Canada did in Afghanistan uh, in, in the ISAF mission a number of years ago. Um, work, with, uh, work with the local forces, train both uh, law enforcement agencies and the military to be able to defend um, local, uh, local areas. Uh, we have world-class special ops soldiers, so expanding the special operations for uh, training that is already going on there, um, calling back our CF-18s and making sure that the Kurdish Peshmerga and the Iraqi forces are given the training that is necessary uh, for them to, um, to uh, defend themselves, not leave our allies in a lurch, um, not leave our American allies, our closest trading partner, um, out to dry, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, the NDP uh, was uh, talking a little bit about, you know, showing up, playing ball at the table. The Liberal Party is ready to play ball um, and help with um, the training mission there. Uh, but we think taking an active military role isn't what we're going to do. There's still a role there for the military, but a training mission is what we see as the best solution to this. Okay, we go to the NDP for rebuttal. Thank you. Um, this one's really hard for me. Uh, when we the current dialogue we have about the the uh, Iraq mission uh, op impact, uh, I find it, I find the current talk about the, the mission really, um, frankly, disrespectful. It's it's disrespectful to the warriors who've come before us to make the same mistakes over and over again. We've got a situation that is highly complex that we don't have good intelligence on, but we're still willing to to go in and try and blow up our way out of it. That's not how this works anymore. The dropping bomb solution would not work even if we could pull it off, but frankly, I am doubtful that these are six CF-18s, a strategic level resource for us, are making a strategic level difference in Iraq. And when it comes to the training operation, again, this is the 21st century. We all know what training operation means now. We've seen American training operations in Yemen. We've seen them in Somalia. We've seen them across Sub-Saharan Africa. We know what training operation is code for. And frankly, it doesn't make you a good, honest broker on the, in the international system. 
if we want to make a difference, we want to show the world we're committed to making a difference, we need to start walking the walk on our international commitments. We need to ratify the arms trade treaty. We need to start showing people we're serious about providing, providing humanitarian aid. We need to show the world, especially in a volatile region like the Middle East, where so much comes down to reputation and where you've stood in issues in the past, we need to show them that we're ready to make the region a better place, to increase regional stability. If we play this role now, if we play the bombing game, we have to sit out the rebuilding the region game. I think it's really important for us to recognize we've seen the situation before and that we need to take a break. We'll move to the Conservatives uh, to have a rebuttal. Okay, thank you so much. So um, Sam was talking about, oh, what a training mission implies, quote-unquote. Uh, essentially, what the training mission that the Harper government is um, uh, talking about, what, what we're doing in ISIS right now, is a non-combat mandate. So essentially, soldiers are being trained uh, in Iraq to defend or to fight against whatever may come. And uh, the, this, this, this doesn't mean that whatever, again, whatever Sam is trying to imply that training missions are, Canada strives to be a peacekeeping nation, right? It's, it's not like we're going to send soldiers out under the guise of a training mission and suddenly, oh, uh, we're going to ensue violence. Um, in a foreign country, no, that's that's not how that's not how Canada is. Uh, Sam was also talking about humanitarian aid and how we should focus on that as well, uh, which there is a push for absolutely, and um, this this ties into into the, the the state of the Middle East and how there are there are refugees um, and and uh, people who are fleeing from war torn countries that need a place to come to, and the Conservative Party is also focusing on bringing more refugees in from these from these uh, war-torn and devastated countries. And it's not just military, 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 um, what is a training mission violence. Um, it, it's not, it's a mix of the two. We need to have a good defense system in place as well as being the um, peacekeeping reliable country that we're reputed for. Thank you very much. Moving on now to the campus questions. What's your party's opinion on legalizing marijuana? We'll begin with the conservatives. Lovely. All right. Well, I mean, <laughs> everybody knows. Well, I mean, I don't mean everybody, but I'm sure many uh, young people on campus know the uh, conservative party's stance on marijuana. It's uh, uh, steadfast no <laughs> in capital capital <laughs> letters um, to to legalizing marijuana. Um, are we allowed to be like personal on this, or is this more just our party's mandate? Okay, cool. Well, um, I'm not gonna go out and say like I support marijuana or I don't support it. Um, that's just not something I'm gonna do. However, I don't believe uh, that me personally. I don't believe that um, making uh, having marijuana a criminal act is, is is the best thing to do, especially when it comes like to just like social living or or, or taxes too. If you want to bring in. Um, monetary stereotypical conservative thing to, into the question. I personally don't believe it's um, the best thing to to make uh, possessing marijuana or, or whatever uh, completely legal. But um, when it comes to the party stance, yes, we are a no on that. Right. Uh, moving to the Liberal Party. Um, well, I think in terms of well-known policies of the Liberal Party, I think this one came out um, a couple of years back at the uh, biennial and go a little anecdotal here, um, there was um, debate over, this was a young liberal of Canada, 
I propose that she legalize marijuana at the uh, last uh, national convention of the Liberal Party. And when this was being debated, debated uh, police officer after police officer after police officer was lined up at the microphone saying that the war on drugs and the policies of drug uh, of marijuana prohibition have just not worked. He, I remember a police officer coming up and saying he had instead of you know ruining someone's life, he actually took uh, marijuana that somebody had on them and ended up flushing it down the toilet because you know the policies, the minimum sentencing that the Conservative government has put in. Is not working. We saw it this week when there was uh, when that was just recently overturned in a court case. Minimum sentencing. The Liberal plan is to legalize, tax, and regulate. Uh, we plan to legalize marijuana, tax it appropriately, and regulate it, much like you would um, uh, alcohol um, at the LCBO or something like that. Um, we think this is that the current policies haven't been working. Um, we need to try and take a different approach to the uh, to drug policy in Canada, and uh, we think this is the best way to deal with it. Onto the NDP. The only way to stop a bad guy with a blunt is a good guy with a blunt. <laughs> I, I think that uh, I think that this is this is a discussion that well, it's important to have. We're having the wrong way. Uh, I like to give a shout out to local activist Craig Jones. Uh, Craig's big thing is mar like marijuana decriminalization, legalization. But what he knows to focus on is what does a post-prohibition Canada look like. What does it look like when we've when we've legalized or decriminalized marijuana? How is that like? What does this what does this new system look like? Which is important. It frustrates me to no end though that this is the issue parties bring to young people. Why is this what you think young people want? Like this is all this is all your youth voters care about is whether or not they can buy weed. How are you going to afford that dank without a job? <laughs> like let's be real here. It's it's insulting to young people. That this is the issue that parties, including including the NDP, including some NDP candidates, target young people with. It's absurd. This isn't what young people care about. Our friends are going to jail, sure, but like, there are that is only a symptom of the problem. That is the only that's uh, this is such a small part of the issues affecting young people. It's d disgraceful that this is how young people are targeted by political parties. Okay, moving to the second campus question. A couple days ago, we saw a lot of farmers revolt against the Trans-Pacific Partnership because they don't want Canadian milk to be processed in America. And coming from the country, I want to know what your party thinks about the TPP. Uh, we'll start with the Liberal Party. So the Liberal Party, in terms of trans the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, uh, we believe um, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and its, uh, in its enactment. Um, the Liberal Party has been always been uh, pro-free trade. Um, and I think this is a, a trade deal that involves 40% of the world's GDP, our two largest NAFTA, part our two NAFTA partners in the U.S. and Mexico. Um, if we're left out on this, we're going to be left in the dust economically. Um, there's just so much that we need to, uh, that this partnership involves. Uh, so many important allies and countries that we need to be able to trade with. Um, the only thing that we need to see more of, and the, the Liberal Party plans to do, is to um, ensure that the treaty is in the best interest of Canadians and to make sure that the negotiation uh, process is transparent and open. Uh, the Harper government hasn't been um, open and transparent with how the uh, this is being negotiated. Um, we've kind of been left in the dark about what sectors are going to be affected, especially the dairy uh, and our agriculture sectors. Um, so we want to make sure that they, um, these things are addressed, um, You know, make sure we have a tremendous export potential for the beef and, beef and pork industry. Um, again, 40% of our world's of the world's GDP is involved in this deal. 
Um, we need to be a part of it. We need a seat at the table, and it all comes back to our internationalism again. We need to step up to the plate and hit this one out of the park, and the Liberal Party of Canada is prepared to do that. Back to the NDP. It's no secret that the NDP is uh, the big on the like, we're the big Labour Party. That's what that's what we're well known for. Uh, but this is also an issue that affects a lot of young people. A lot of young people are very confused by the, t the tr uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, and they're really quite frustrated with how this has been put forward. It's not hard to see where all these, like what, what are dismissed as conspiracy theories by the Conservative government. We, it's not hard to see where these come from about what the Trans-Pacific Partnership is about when so many efforts have been made to disguise what it's about. The NDP, especially young people in the NDP, are very concerned about this deal, about what it's what it's for, how this is going to affect their ability to get jobs, how it's going to affect their parents' jobs. A lot of uh, a lot of our members come from come from working working backgrounds and like a lot of automotive plants, agricultural sectors, stuff like that. The fact that we don't know how, as as the our representative from the Liberal Party said, that something involving forty percent of the world's GDP, the fact that it's not common knowledge how this will affect everyone's daily lives tells me at least that there there is something being hidden from me and i find that concerning and frustrating that i as someone who feels that they're an informed voter or whatever that means anymore that something is being hidden from me now to the conservative party okay great yeah i think uh sandy touched on something really important um young people being confused for the tpp uh, you know, I've done, I've tried to do my research on the TPP and I'm still not at a loss, but there's, there's more definitely that I can really, um, solidify myself on what this thing is actually about. And that goes back to what our liberal representative was talking about too, about transparency and accountability and how that's super important. Um, Trans-Pacific Partnership, of course, is a free trade, uh, in the, like agreement in the stages of, um, I'll touch on uh, the free trade agreement that the Conservative Party did make with uh, with South Korea that came into effect essentially um, January 1st of this year. So Canada, of course, is no stranger to free trade. Um, because it does work with 40% of the GDP, uh, our government needs to be very uh, conscious of how they bring this um, partnership into effect. And I think that the Conservatives' experience with um, economy in general. Uh, Canada has one of the strongest economies in the G7, um, that they are the best party to deal with uh, how this partnership actually comes into play. Thank you. We move now to our final topic, a simple question for each party. Why should a university student voting for the first time choose your party? We start with the NDP. Again, uh, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the most uh, partisan political guy. I uh, my big thing that I I've, I've always been interested in was a uh, military military and defense stuff and like national security stuff. But it eventually became clear to me that my I'm I'm being attacked as a young person. Uh, I'm I'm having things that belong to me taken from me. I'm having the environment taken from me. I'm having my future career taken from me. I think young people in Canada are very frustrated with politics because they feel like voting isn't the solution. They feel like if they want to change something, they have to go out and basically riot, or if they, they just have to stay home on, on Twitter and just talk about how they're mad. The NDP is giving young people an out to that system. We're giving people a chance to change the system. You don't need to go back and forth. This doesn't need to be player one, player two anymore. You can change the world, and the NDP is the only party that is, go that is going to make the changes young people need to get our futures back. I'm, t I'm tired of waiting, and I would encourage young p other young people 
to not just vote. This doesn't stop at the election. We need to continue to press for a candidate we want at, at and outside the ballot box. Thank you. The Conservative Party? Fantastic. Okay, so I'll answer this by saying let's forget about, just for now, names. Let's forget about Trudeau and Harper and Mulcair and all of the things that we, negative or positive, that we associate with these people. Let's, I want to talk a bit about ideology. So what I would say to anyone honestly asking me, I don't know who to vote for, who should I vote for, I'd respond by saying what differentiates the Conservatives from the other two parties is that at our core, at our core ideology, we believe in uh, the power of limited government, uh, individual responsibility. So, for example, if you if you you yourself are given the opportunities to make something of your life, then you have the power to achieve it. Whereas other parties um, are more for regulation or the government, quote unquote, essentially telling you what to do, how to use the opportunities that you are given. So um, again, uh, conservative ideology is very much focused on the individual responsibility. You have the power to make what you can of your life. And that's why I'm a conservative. And that's why I would encourage everyone to vote for the conservatives, because that's, I believe, what I believe the best way to pursue a good life is. Thank you. And now the Liberal Party. So um, I think we are all in the very unique position of having never voted uh, in a previous election before, <laughs> so I think it's uh, a very big and important role to get out to the ballot box, no matter who you support, to go and vote. Um, but I think in terms of why I would advocate students vote for the Liberal Party of Canada, um, it's because we need change and we need proactive change. Um, and I think it says a lot about a party and about a country um, when you look after your most vulnerable. I think um, when you look, your most vulnerable being the people on either end, your oldest, your youngest, and your middle class, making sure everyone's accounted for, the entire family, so to speak. And the Liberal Party of Canada is prepared to do that. Um, we've got uh, plans, uh, we are looking after our veterans. Um, we, millions of dollars now uh, is going to be uh, put towards veterans affairs, making sure that we're helping veterans, uh, but most importantly our students, and why, and that's who we're talking about today. Uh, we have a youth employment strategy where $1.3 billion is going to be put towards um, youth jobs. We're the only party willing to run a, a deficit to help create jobs. Um, it's one of the biggest fears I know for myself as a fourth year student coming into the, the workplace for the first time. Um, where am I going to end up? What am I going to do? Um, can I find a job? And we're prepared to do that. We're going to give students the, play, the opportunity to work. We're going to fund co-op placements. We're going to make sure that uh, everyone is looked after. Uh, cuts to the middle class, uh, making sure that everyone, um, it, Canada becomes and continues to be an affordable place for families and um, students especially to live. Um, and I think uh, the Liberal Party of Canada and Justin Trudeau is the country, is the uh, party to deliver on that and make our country a better place. Thank you. That concludes the debate. Thank you all for participating. Election Day is October 19th. Thank you. Thank you very much. On this week's program, we've heard the voices of advocates of the major federal parties, an esteemed scholar, and an enthusiastic campus community here at Queen's University. We've discussed a wide variety of issues affecting the country today, and we hope that at least one of them has inspired you to vote on October 19th. All of us at Right of Reply encourage you to go to elections.ca today to find out how to vote at home or at school. Join Big Mike for Canadian Shield every Tuesday night between 8 and 9. Hey, Judy. Canadian Shield.
CFRC FM Stereo, 101.9 FM, Kojibu Cable 282, CFRC.ca, we're on Twitter and Facebook as well.